welcome. This is our this is the weekly industry 4.0 live stream. We go live every week at noon Central Standard Time. So make sure to smash the like button and ring the bell to get subscribed. Um, Twelve thousand and three hundred beautiful beautiful people. Ninety three percent male, seven percent female. Actually, uh, Dan Riken said we're going to be doing a women in automation channel in Discord. So that's a new yes. initiative. We're trying to increase the percentage of women in automation that was just a yeah. random thought that came into my head but thank anyways it's good to see you guys all here thank you dan Riken, for uh two things number one welcoming me back and number two uh quick shout out you know dan's been doing a dan Riken, dan the man the one who coordinates uh the um federation study group on every other saturday morning he's the one who coordinated that um session where Arlen Nipper joined. <clears throat> Dan has been I don't wanna blow <laughs> I don't want to blow up his spot, but he's been working behind the scenes on a um a very interesting um I think much needed um expansion of our community. So uh and it's all centered around women in automation. Um mm -hmm. and I think that what he's doing is phenomenal. Actually, you know, I wanna take this couple of minutes to get well, started. Why don't so. you let everyone know how you're doing? Because, you know, the update yeah. last week was that you got ill. We had to reschedule mm -hmm. the mentorship call to this Friday. Yes. How are you so, feeling? <laughs> all right. So last Thursday, um, I got really sick. Uh, woke up with a um, nasty cough, medicine head. But the big issue was I was super dizzy. I couldn't stand mm -hmm. up. Um, as soon as I sat up, I got vertigo and I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I actually nearly fell through my coffee table right in front of my kids. It was kind of funny. They were kind of, I think they were hoping that it would happen, but, um, I was super, super sick. And obviously, you know, I was worried I had COVID. Um, I did not, but, um, I have a RS, I had RSV, which is uh, all the symptoms are pretty much the same. It's a respiratory illness, sinuses, whatever. Um, so I had a fever for a couple of days. I took uh, about three days, I think three days before I was actually able to uh, like walk around and do work and mm -hmm. stuff. So and it was really, it was actually horrible. Um, I only had the fever for about a day, but the it was the dizziness. And then I lost my sense of smell on Saturday and I still don't have it. Uh, it's really But you weird. weren't worried if it was COVID because you're vaccinated. Correct. I didn't think it was COVID to begin with, but it wasn't. Um, I mean, initially yeah. I thought, oh, my God, maybe I got COVID. I don't know how. It's it's not like I, I go anywhere. So, um, hey, Cheryl. Hey, but uh, Yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm doing way better. I've, I was back in the office yesterday. I'd say I'm 90, 95 percent. So we'll be doing our mentorship call this Friday. I super yeah. appreciate everyone's um, well wishes and stuff. Let me say this. I got a lot of questions. I, I, some of the questions that I get, I actually – um, I think, I don't want to say that. I think they're weird because uh, if you ask me this question, I don't think you're weird, but, um, I got a lot, here are a couple of co very, very common questions. Number one, are you vaccinated? Uh, number two, if you are vaccinated, um, which vaccine did you get? Number three are, you know, as a business owner, are you mandating vaccines for your employees and all that kind of stuff? So just real quick, you know, I want to, I did answer these questions for everybody, but I'll answer them again. Yes, I am vaccinated. My whole family is vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I've been vaccinated, I think, since April. So yeah. if I'm going to get a booster, I'm going to get a booster like in December or whatever. A uh, couple of things that are I, I, we, we have a very close relationship 
with a couple of the pharma companies that made the vaccine. So we had uh, we've been we were working on um, a couple of projects on the uh, uh, coronavirus vaccine vaccine. So we were really close to the research and stuff. Um, and before I made that decision, I had to get I had a chance to ask the people who work for these companies, you know, is the is the vaccine safe, et cetera, et cetera. So I was a, I, I had information that I guess, you know, and my, our company did that other people didn't have. So we did make the decision to get the vaccine. A um, couple of things. I let my kids make the decision themselves. So I didn't, my wife and I did not decide that our kids would be vaccinated. Our kids made that decision themselves. So our 17 year old son made that decision Our and our older kids. And then my 14 year old also made the decision once he was allowed to. Um, in terms of our employment are my companies uh, we are not mandating that people get vaccines so we are strongly encouraging we're strongly encouraging that our employees go meet with their physicians and get their vaccines but that's not something we're mandating that our employees do because that the um the order doesn't apply to us and <laughs> i just think that's something i, I don't want to have this turn this into a, i just wanted to answer the specific questions yeah. that people it's like ask digital me. transformation you can't mandate it and sure. try to expect it to go from the top down You've but let gotta... me let me say this i strongly strongly <laughs> encourage that people go get with your physician and and work with your physician to decide whether or not the vaccine is for you and your family mm -hmm. so that is that's my position me and my family are fully vaccinated i did not get covid although i thought i had covid I was really sick. I feel much better now. Okay. Thank and, you. Yeah. And thank you everyone who, um, who gave well wishes. I, I, by the way, I felt like I, I never get sick ever. I mean, I, I was actually trying to think about the last time I was actually sick, like had it like a cold or the flu or something. It's been years and years and years. I, yeah. I did. I had a really bad eye infection a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago. I had a horrible eye infection. Um, I actually couldn't see out of one eye. I don't remember what actually happened. I'll have to ask the team if they remember what it was. But I had, like, this horrible eye infection. Um, and uh, I couldn't see for a couple of weeks, double vision and all kind of stuff. But other than that, I haven't been sick in years. So Yeah. Um, it, was all right. crazy. it was crazy when you called me that uh, the other morning. I was like, man, you sound like crap. <laughs> <It was> yeah. like... <laughs> My kids say I still sound a little, you know, but – it oh, it's, all right. We'll ask the community: Are you vaccinated? Yes, no, no or prefer not to share? Do not do that. Okay, do okay. Not, do I've not been, do that. I've okay. been trying to come up with like a poll because I don't know. I just want to like, get to know you guys better, you guys and girls better too. So if you guys have, uh, I think anything you want to share. It, in the here's comments. my last thing. The last question I'll ha I'll answer. I did a, all those questions I just answered. By the way, they were asked of me. People did ask in the community. Mm -hmm. um, last thing I'll say is this: I think um, that. You know, public health should not be politicized. I just, mm -hmm. I think, you know, yes, we can disagree on certain things, but I just think it's kind of weird that we've somehow managed in the United States anyway to politicize the public health, which is just, to me, this is absurd. I mean, so, <clears throat> yes, Ravel's podcast. So the podcast that I did with Ravel a couple weeks ago, um, the OPCUA MQTT uh, is slated to drop tomorrow. I still have to watch back the edit. So, and then I'll let, um, sponsored by easy VPN. Yep. So I'm getting rid of the sponsorships here right in a second. <laughs> Dropping the drop. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, real quick, uh, th this month's, uh, let me go ahead and share my screen. I, we're only going to be doing questions. I actually got a couple of, uh, I think are going to be pretty cool that you guys will dig. Mm. Uh, all right. Wrong one. Screen two. 
Ray-Ban releases the uh, Ray-Ban and Facebook release Ray-Ban stories. Wearable tech. Right. So this month's sponsor is uh, EasyVPN. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys don't know EasyVPN, these guys we talk keep talking about the IO Hub. I've been doing a bunch of testing with this. So this right here is uh, their Edge device, and then it's got EasyVPN. Um, it's got the VPN itself running on it, but I'll, the thing that I'm really testing is the IO Hub, which is running on here. Um, in a nutshell, IO Hub is basically an IoT platform, and I've been testing deploying their various industrial um, containers using Docker with IO Hub. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty dope. Um, actually, a lot of dope. A lot of sick. Awesome. Um, I actually think this technology and if in the folks from Libre, so the folks from Libre who, um, uh, what's the, what are the guy's names, Jeff? Uh, Kurt and Kurt and Jeff. Jeff. Kurt and Jeff. Mm-hmm. If, if what the Libre guys are promising and I haven't evaluated the technology yet, I still haven't even met what I had one phone call with Kurt. I haven't, I had a, discord conversation with jeff in the discord um if what Smart they're guys, by the yeah way. yeah they're if what they're promising they're actually delivering on um there's a couple of issues i have with the whole graphql thing I, I it's phenomenal technology and i don't you know i don't want those guys to take that i'm being hypercritical i'm not i'm being socratic about this um if what they're promising is real Coupled with this technology and, um, you know, in, in Kubernetes and other container, you know, Kubernetes platform for managing Docker containers, um, they are, it is, in fact, like major game changers. Um, now, it, it's, an extension, it's an extension of what we've already been, it really has to do with the ability to widely manage and deploy across an enterprise at an even faster rate than we currently are. So what what Libre will give you is an extension of self-awareness that requires uh, less integration time. So um, that is, you know, edge-driven self-awareness with less development times, primarily through the knowledge maps, okay? Um, knowledge graphs. Um, the, Got it. And... What IOHub's going to give you is, I mean, what what's making IOHub different than the other platforms that are out there? It's really the business model, right? Well, for me as an engineer, it's not the business model. For me, at the as an engineer, it is how agnostic the industrial containers are. So they are specific to you know, hey, there's a Siemens container and hey, there's a Rockwell container, but it is the overall approach to developing these Docker containers and the platform itself that makes it a Swiss army knife for edge IOT implementations. That's, and, and that's with very little in it, with very little integration like that, that edge, that edge, uh, those edge tools have been, have been in existence, right? Ignition edge is a great tool. Um, there's a lot of edge tools out there that, that will allow you to achieve your digital transformation goals for specific. You got a large maintenance, maintenance process. You have a lot of maintenance with that installation on the edge. Correct. 
and and you have while you have less engineering time than we've ever had in any period in our history, you still have some engineering time. But the Libre and IO Hub, the unique thing, if assuming the guys at Libre are delivering on what they're saying, they can deliver on. Thank you, Alicia. And and what I'm experiencing with IO Hub thus far, man, it, it's it, it it's going to shift. It's going to shift the way that we integrate legacy systems um, into our IoT infrastructure. Without, I mean, and my point is, without having to take everything through an, uh, the IoT platform, right? Transforming through the IoT platform, you're going to be able to transform on the edge easier, faster. You know. Um, so we, you got the ignition container running for IO Hub. What are the plans for getting like a high byte container or like a frameworks container? I have to ask, I'll have to ask that. I haven't asked um, Graziano or. Right. Um, and then when can we expect the deep dive, like kind of like a, a deeper dive on the IO Hub? Your, your final thoughts, like end of this month? Me getting sick kind of derailed my schedule a little bit, but yeah, at the end of the month. Okay. So, and by the way, that's not a, I mean, they are the sponsor this month. That conversation was not a sponsored conversation. I, right. you know, this is my, these are my honest thoughts. Um, there, there isn't anything out there like the IO Hub. And there's stuff out there like this appliance, right? That's right. The, the appliance isn't the important thing. We're it's, trying to communicate. It's the it's software. Uniqueness. It's the platform that's going to run on it and or that runs on here. And when you take IO Hub, There's already people doing amazing things with Docker for industry, but they're using commercial solutions to do it. This is this is the the first really agnostic platform that's leveraging Docker for specifically right. industrial. Here's services. the poll: Are you using Docker containers? Yes or no? Oh, that's, that's going to be that's, that's going to be very few people. That's gonna right, be very but few we people. want to increase that, right? All right, so before I get to into the questions, um, training updates, we got 272 members in mentorship. Um, I think, yeah, we still have eight um, submitted zipped VMs I've reviewed. Uh, I think five of the eight um, now um, that I've got them restored. <clears throat> we'll have an update for the mentees on Friday on uh, scheduling your guys' reviews. Um, Mastermind, 78 mentor, members, uh, frameworks, integration, next month and or actually this month and uh, we're going to be focusing on supply chain integration um you guys this is our first update on enterprise industry 4.0 training you guys may not know this but we also do enterprise industry 4.0 training we have a little a little over 2000 members in this in these enterprise programs we're basically think oh, of man. it as iot.university but the the customer it, 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 it's uh, hosted at the customer site and all their employees go through it. Think of it that way. Um, enterprise 4.0. Yeah. Enterprise 4.0 training. Yeah. Um, and the one, the big difference between those enterprise training programs and what everyone's doing on IOT.university is there's a non-technical and technical track for the, in, the enterprise customers. So like uh, administrative staff still, everybody goes through industry 4.0 training but there's a non-technical and a technical track. A um, couple of announcements. So um, the Microsoft Ignite 
conference is in November. If you guys want to attend, um, Zach will throw the link in the chat. I will almost certainly attend um, this conference. It's a two-day fully virtual event. Um, I want to see a couple of their announcements. I won't watch the whole thing, though. And then the Ignition Community Conference is next week. Uh, I'll probably attend for just a couple of hours, give or take. I know all the announcements, everything that they're going to be announcing next week. So, um, And I, I, I really don't think like the remote conference thing is really that effective. Um, and so I'm going to focus on development. But I'll be on there for a few hours. I'm definitely going to watch the keynote. Um, strongly encourage you guys, if you want to, you know, expand your minds, maybe attend Microsoft Ignite or uh, Ignition Community Conference next week. All right, let's get to our questions. Um, so some of these came from LinkedIn, and then um, the rest of them are going to be YouTube uh, questions. Does anybody have any questions? Can Windows be installed on that device? One-way automation, the con then you could run OPC Classic. Uh, no, um, Ravel, they, uh, it's only Linux OS on that, on that device. Um, uh, well, I, I know that for users, you can, you can only, it's only running a Linux operating system. I don't, I'm assuming we could probably flash a, uh, hmm. the windows IOT, um, OS on it if we needed to, uh, where does emotional intelligence like that come from? Ah, funny, <laughs> uh, Alicia. <laughs> Uh, with with uh, Dan Reichen. Um All right, here we go. Uh, I want to automate a paper plant with SAP. Uh, me, uh, what do you suggest? OPC um, or MQTT? Um, so the answer to that question is um, there is a um, MQTT. All right, now, the challenge with using MQTT to integrate with SAP, me, is you're going to do that through, uh, is it SAP PCO? I think it is, right? Plant control platform, whatever. There is a, there are MQTT connectors um, in SAP. Is it SAP PCO? It's PCO, right? My brain is still cloudy, guys. Sorry. I just got to make sure I get the, yes, plant connectivity. So, um I would, if I'm going to integrate with SAP, um, me, MII, whatever you guys want to call it, um, I'm going to do it through MQTT and I'm going to do it through um, PCO. Um, unless I am using another middleware that allow me to publish MQTT payloads uh, into the queue. Good starting question. Um, Mohammed. Uh, Hello Walker, could you please recommend an MES program that will work efficiently with a PC with Siemens uh, S7 version 8.1? So the reason we put this question here is we get a lot of these types of questions. Obviously, I can't give you a an answer. To, there, aren't, there isn't enough information in there. Um, <laughs> but I think what stands out is the fact that he's specifically saying cymatic, not cymatic. <laughs> okay. Which, by the way, Cymatic, if there's anything that was designed to run as efficiently as possible with uh, S7 V8.1, it would be the Cymatic offering. Okay, So that's the irony here. The irony is I want efficiently, but I don't want what's vertically integrated in the stack. And, and let me say this. 
I did um, last week before I got sick. I just sort of riffed a like a master class, oh, yeah. like an hour and a half long. I literally did uh, I, as if I was teaching a class, and I taught, you know, why is industry 4.0 so hard? And basically, you know, 11, I, I did it in basically 11 sections, and it took an hour, and I filmed it hour and a half. Zach is actually editing it right now, and it's going to be this free master class we're just offering, and we just kind of explain, like, you know, how does industry work, and like, you know, why, you know, why does you know, how our business is built, how our automation companies built and why is it that they seem to develop MES solutions that have the same label on them as the, my PLC, but I can't efficiently integrate the two together. Right. I talk about a lot of that stuff, all those reasons. So the reason we highlighted this here is obviously there's no easy answer. I, I can't tell you what MES program is going to work efficiently, efficiently with Siemens S7 uh, V8.1. What I can say is this: I, I'm almost always going to start with an IoT platform to integrate with, and I'm not going to try to buy MES off the shelf because if you, as you'll notice in the videos we shot in the last couple, released in the last couple of weeks, MES is not a thing. It's a suite of things, and if you want to get the most out of MES, then the best way to do that is to First, define your capabilities and then build those capabilities within your IoT infrastructure. So um, I know I didn't answer your question, but I used your question to highlight um, some issues that we constantly see in our industry. Uh, let me go here and make sure there are no other questions. All right, cool. Um, PLM integration. This is a great question here. So um, this guy, Sri, said, hey, Walker, I've recently seen all your videos on YouTube and joined the community as well. I'm glad to hear your tutorials, which made me curious on the whole integration of each system out there in manufacturing industry. I did my engineering and instrumentation and currently working in IT in the PLM domain, which is product lifecycle management. I always wonder how the integration will be between the PLM and the ERP. As far as I remember, we majorly worked on data. So the PLM whole point is maintaining data from its design stage to the manufacturing stage by promoting the structure with lifecycle state as per the company standard. So if you find time, can you please explain this? So the whole integration part um, from an IT perspective might get clues us to find out how exactly my work impacts manufacturing. Thanks in advance. All right. <clears throat> this is actually a really good question. It's a very common question. Okay. So in order for me to answer, how does, you know, where does PLM end and ERP begin and, you know, how do they integrate with one another? The answer is most PLM and ERP don't completely integrate together, all right? And the reason why is um, you're going to need to understand what the difference between the two is. So PLM software is software or a suite of solutions designed to manage the products that you design, research and develop, design, um, plan to manufacture, and manufacture, PLM software is designed to manage the product itself from beginning to end, including lifecycle, which is what can we learn from the manufacturing process of our new product and how can we improve that product, okay? So in, in the, you guys may remember we shot a video, the software development lifecycle. Product lifecycle is very similar to the software development lifecycle, okay? PLM software is all about managing the product end to end. 
ERP software is really meant to manage supply chain end-to-end, to manage your financials end-to-end, the business. And a business is made up of many products, okay? There are many manufacturers out there who aren't just in the business of manufacturing. So if I'm selling services, I'm not using product lifecycle management software to manage the product that is my service, okay? Mm. So PLM ends at products, things you actually make, okay? One of the relationship between the uh, a very an interesting relationship between PLM software and ERP, there's overlap between product lifecycle management software and and its its domain and the ERP's domain where ERP gets sprawlier and sprawlier. One of the reasons SAP in my opinion is really you know costs way too much for what you get is because SAP tries to be everything to everyone much in the same way that OPC UA does as a, as a standard. Right. And as such, it's really not good at a whole lot of stuff except for being an ORM an object relational management um, software. SAP or ERP and PLM have functional overlaps very much in the same way that ERP and MES have functional overlaps. So you'll see manufacturing execution system is all about managing the manufacturing process, the step, the execution of many products, my schedule, my raw material management, et cetera. Project lifecycle management cares about things like what is the bill of materials for a specific product, what raw materials are we going to use, what type of tooling are we going to use, all that kind of stuff. PLM is concerned with that, but it's really only concerned with it for a specific product, right? The domain itself is a specific product, right? Whereas manufacturing execution cares about the whole suite of products, okay? The inventory for all products, okay? There is an overlap between manufacturing execution system and ERP very much in the same way that there is an overlap between PLM and ERP. What is my take on PLM and ERP? I think that most people, most organizations, unless they're investing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in research and development of their products, okay? If research and development is after they pass a certain certain threshold of their capital that goes into research and development, once they pass a certain threshold, you see PLM software playing a much larger role in their business. At at a at a at a much lower investment in research and development, they're just doing PLM in the ERP or in spreadsheets or in some lab somewhere. Kibana okay. or something. Right. Agile. Right. Or, you know, uh, Monday morning right? or Monday, right? Is that what it's called? Monday yeah. or yep. Asana. Um, Asana. So the, the answer is where PLM and ERP, how they integrate together. That's because it's expensive, right? PLM is an expensive piece of just software. Just as expensive as your ERP software can be. I mean, the, just as expensive. That's why SAP offers PLM modules. So if I'm, if I'm GE and I'm making an electric turbine, then I'll probably be using PLM for that electric. No question you will be. If you build, if you build planes, you have PLM software. Um, you know, if you, uh, you build cars, you have PLM software. Right. Got it. All right. All right. Uh, Neil's asked an outstanding question here. Okay. Um, I'm researching the possibility uh, with a Siemens S7 1500 PLC. And Siemens has a library that supports MQTT 3.1.1. Because the library is MQTT 3.1.1, does this mean it supports Sparkplug B or not? The answer is no. 
it does not support the in, in fact that S7-1500 PLC, the library you're talking about, was developed in Brazil and Siemens acquired it and all that stuff. It is just MQTT311. Um, if not, do I have to buy an edge of network device that's connected to the Siemens PLC, which is compatible with Sparkplug B? You don't have to, but if you want it, if you want to send a Sparkplug B payload, you do. Yes. It, actually, that's not entirely true. You can sort of create a... Uh, something that looks like a spark plug B payload uh, just in the Siemens PLC. <coughs> but you won't be able to um, use any of the protobuf. Where can I find out if my Edge of Network device is compatible with spark plug B? Hope you or someone else can help me. It's hard to find the answer to these questions. Two things. Number one, IO Hub has a Siemens container in it, which will allow you to um, integrate to an S7-1500 that can act as your Edge of Network device. Number two, and the way that we generally do it is, um, and there, are, there's a bunch of other options here. You can use the uh, CMT SVR, which uh, I've got on my board back here by Maple Systems. It's got a Siemens driver in it. You put the CMT SVR local to the PLC. You use that Siemens driver, um, and then you publish over Sparkplug B. That's one one way to do it. the The way that we generally do it is using Ignition Edge. Now. Because you could buy the Siemens driver for like 250 bucks, and that would be the only module that you had um, in your Ignition Edge running, so you'd only have to spend $250. But inductive automation is, you know, they. this is one of my complaints about uh, inductive automation. They're constantly moving the goalposts as it relates to this type of pricing kind of stuff. Um, and, and my understanding now is you can't, you can't do that anymore. You can't... Uh, I think they increased the price of those individual drivers and because Platform a lot of used to be free, which was right. A lot of people, a lot of people were doing this. They were using ignition with just like a driver and you were getting, you know, ignition platform with that driver, right? You were getting the platform. You weren't getting vision. You weren't getting that stuff, but the underlying platform tags yeah. and all that kind of stuff that was included with the driver. The, so the softwares that I like, they give you the platform for free and then, right. you know, and, and yes. So the, to answer your question, yes, you're no three one one doesn't make it spark plug B compliant. Um, spark plug B sits on top of three one one. Um, the way that we do it, there's a couple different ways. I, I think I probably still would use the CMT SVR because biggest bang for your buck. Um, you know, I'm getting 300 drivers for, you know, what, three, 380, 400 bucks, something like that. I think it's less than $400. I'm getting 300 something drivers, Sparkplug B support. Um, and it's got HMI, you know, HTML5 HMIs built into it and that kind of stuff. It's got a mobile app, all that kind of thing. So I'm probably going to use the CMT SVR there as my edge device, but I got a whole, I got a, a whole bunch of choices. It really depends on your architecture. All right, Jeff Robinson, let me go ahead and zoom in here. Um, I'm actually going to uh, a little bit of development here in a second on the next question. So you guys will, will walk through, through Ignition. I'm going to show you how to build something. Um, <clears throat> Jeff Robinson said, <clears throat> if I understand correctly, the Sparkplug namespace is basically independent from the rest of the namespace and can typically only interact with a subset of clients. Further to this, because the Sparkplug B spec dictates that the format of the topic structure is governed by the topology of the end of network nodes, it isn't necessarily possible to structure the Sparkplug namespace to align with a plant area line cell factory model. Well, it, you can, but 
I understand his point. Also, there isn't a there isn't a spark plug namespace per se. There is a spbv1.0 root namespace, and I think that's what he's talking about. Um, we ge I don't generally refer to it as a spark plug namespace, um, but I understand what he's saying here. Um, plant it doesn't necessarily align with plant area line cell factory model that depends on where your edge of network nodes fall within that topology but point taken especially if you plan to use something like high bite where it can be the spark plug b edge of network node for the whole plant this means that spark plug clients can't rely on the sns topic structure to be normalized from plant to plant this is true well it could be possible but not likely uh, this could only occur within the payload metric naming, and this is something Matt Paris brings up all the time. Does it make sense to think of the SNS as a distinctly different layer from the UNS? Yes, absolutely. This is how we could structure it, each with their own strengths. So what, that, what does that mean? It means that the spark plug namespace is a subset of your overall unified namespace, and topics at a higher level in unified namespace can reference things that are within the spark plug namespace so yes that's exactly how we architect it by the way each with their own strengths the spark plug data can be translated and or transformed by sns clients and published up to the uns where required for consumption by more plain speaking clients that rely on a normalized factory model 100 percent. that's exactly what we do the the way that you will the the language that you will recognize is when i say this okay um when I say that a spark plug namespace can live right alongside an MQTT 311 or MQTT 5 namespace within the same broker. They, you'll, I'll, I say that all the time. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We don't get into the, the semantical references. So how, how does the UNS actually structured long term? What does it look like at a higher level? We don't get into that in our like public YouTube content, but we do talk about that stuff in mastermind and mentorship. All right. Any other questions? Am I? Yes, I'm using Docker containers. Let me get rid of that thing. That's annoying. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, hey, this is um, Narender. I'm. You know, how can I make my carrier in digitization? Kindly suggest. Uh, I don't understand the question. Narender is saying my name. This is Narender from India. I'm a big guy. I have nine years of ERP sales experience plus one years of Delmia Works MES sales experience. How I can make my carrier in digitization? Kindly suggest. Um, <coughs> can you clarify the question, Narendra, please? Um, all right, let's go to Eamon's question here. So, Eamon, you guys in Discord, Eamon asked this question. I got an ignition question. Has anyone tried to parse a JSON tag? to a normal memory tag and ignition. Just, there's no such thing as a JSON tag, but there's a, in, there's a thing as you could have a JSON payload value inside of a tag, but I'm just clarifying here. I tried using JSON get, but it doesn't seem to be dynamic. I'm actually gonna show you how to do that. But I'm gonna start with, um, um, I think John Forbord answered the question. If, I, if I'm wrong, if it wasn't John, I apologize, but I think it was Forbord. He actually referenced you to uh, Kevin McCluskey's JSON Python object tag sync script. 
and he said if you want to basically take um, a a tag that's got a JSON payload in it, and you know you want to take a JSON payload and turn that into tags, here you can do this from Exchange. Okay, this is a little different because it's sort of I don't want to say it's static, but it's event driven. That is, this is a Python script that can take a JSON payload and turn it into tags inside of Ignition. I'm actually going to go ahead and show you, and th and this works great, um, but I'm going to show you how you would just do this inside of tags, okay? Um, two different ways, both um, individual tags and then in um, uh, uh, UET, okay? You're, you're so, going to show us that right now? Yeah, can you see my, my screen? Yeah. Here, the Ignition development. Yes. Gang is I'm gonna I'm gonna show you exactly how I would do this. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm gonna do is start by creating um, a, a memory tag, and that memory tag is just gonna be uh, a JSON, okay? Um, and the data type will be a string, and then uh, I'll click apply. So I'm gonna go ahead and um, create another tag and that tag <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to take I'm going to reference that JSON and and whatever the value is in that JSON payload I'm going to parse it so I'm going to create a an expression tag and I'm just going to call it JSON you know exp and I'll make that a string and then I will click apply and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and put a JSON uh, in here. So as the, as the value, in fact, I actually have one over here. Hold on a second. Let me just drop it in here. Cause I, I built a UDT already that does this. Okay. So what I've done is I've created a, I've created a JSON that's key value pair, right? So name is Walker. I'm 47 years old and I'm located in Dallas. Okay. And what I want to do is what he's saying is, is can I, can I take a JSON and can I reference that in another tag? And I want to use JSON get to do that. All right. So what I'm going to do is I have this expression tag. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to write an expression where I'm going to go ahead and retrieve one of these values as the value in that tag. So I'm going to use a try, which I always do. Um, and the first thing I'm going to, I'm going to do a JSON get. And I'm also going to do a JSON encode or JSON format, I think it is, right? Yeah. Um, so I need to, f what I'm going to do is I'm going to format this string as a, um, as a JSON, okay? So what I've done, what I'm doing right here is I am grabbing that string that's a JSON and I'm saying make it a JSON object okay object. okay so i'm i'm formatting that and then in my get in my get what i'm going to do is reference the key is i'm going to say i want to grab um we'll grab name okay and uh then i will close out my get and then i will say if it doesn't work put error in there on my nice. try Okay. All right. So then I'll commit that. 
I'll click apply. And if I did it right, it's got Walker in there. Okay. There you go. So now, and, and if you did it wrong, it would error. Correct. And it would error out or it would say error as the payload. And if I want to change it, if I want to, you know, now you could see that I'm doing this manually, obviously. Right. So if I want to see my, my age 47, right. This is a way that you can manually do the referencing. Okay. Now the reason I'm doing this and, and we don't normally do this type of development stuff, you know, in a live stream, cause it can be boring. You guys have been asking for more technical stuff. So that's why I'm showing you the technical components. Generally, when we do the technical stuff, nobody watches the videos and we want to get our message out to as many people as we can. So, so number one is I, I, that's what I did manually. Okay. So I can take a JSON. Okay. And I can use an expression tag to reference that. I could also put a tag event on here and write it into a memory tag if I wanted to. So every time this changed, I could write it into another memory tag, which was what his original question was. But here's the other way that you could do it. And I've already written this. Okay. So I, I wrote it, I built a UDT that's just JSON parse, okay? And so I have a, a component that is the JSON. And so what I'm going to do is go ahead and grab my, uh, my JSON, and let's go ahead and just change this. Um, click apply. All right, so what I've got is the JSON, okay? I have, and then I put three tags in here. One is age, one is location, and one is name, Okay. And then the expression that I have in here is the same expression I wrote previously, um, except what I'm doing is instead of declaring the key value, the key saying, I want you to get name. What I'm saying is, is go get the key that is the name of this tag, right? Ooh, so, self-referencing. Right, right. So I'm, I'm referencing the name of my tag. Okay. So let me show you what that looks like. So if I go back here and I go ahead and create an, a, an instance, a data type instance of JSON parse, okay? And I'll just, you know, call it JSON parse and click apply. Everything's already previously defined, right? I already put my, J, my JSON in there. So it, the reference, it is saying, go get the key age because the name of my tag is age, right? If I change the name of that tag, this is going to break, right? So this is a dynamic reference to that payload. So what I could do, what I could do is I could write a script that creates a user-defined data type from a JSON payload where I have an object, I have a tag called a JSON where my payload's going to live. And then for each key, I create a tag. And I could, and I could insert the expression into that user-defined data type. I could script that, okay? That would actually be a really cool script to write. Right. What Kevin McCluskey did, so this is me taking it a step further than what Kevin did. What Kevin did is he wrote a script in Python that can take a payload, okay, take a JSON, and it could create a tag for each key, right? Um, and based on, and if you, and let's say you put a JSON inside of a JSON inside of, so a dictionary inside of a dictionary, right? inside of a dictionary for each level of dictionary, you're going to have a, a level in the hierarchy in your tags. Right. And again, I'm getting way more technical than we normally get. So what I would do in different than what Jason did or McCluskey did is I would create user. I would dynamically build a, a data type from that JSON. So I would create a data type 
and then create an instance for that data type. That's what I would do. Okay. Here's why, especially if it's multiple publishers of that same payload. Correct. The format would be exactly the same. Format would be the same. The values would be different, different instances. All right. Any, let me go over here and see if there's any questions. Hopefully that's not, we didn't lose all our viewers. They're saying, uh, uh, well, so let's see. They're saying, welcome, uh, Alicia. It's good to see you in here. Any, any, any questions on what I just showed, showed there? Does anybody want me to explain any different valuable, not valuable? Are you going to do this in frameworks next month? What's that? Are we going to do this in the frameworks integration next month? Yeah, but you do it differently in frameworks. In frameworks, you use .NET to create assets. Um, oh, doesn't look day over 32. Yeah, that's a, that's the charity in me. Thank you, say too. Um, <laughs> any any questions on the UDT definition or how to answer? You know how I answered his question. <clears throat> Is this something we we should do in Q and As, or should we stick stay away from doing technical examples? The other thing is if you obviously you guys can see here if I go in here and you know change my name change it to Zach. Zach Goldie of twenty twenty nine. Twenty nine. God's crazy. We've been working together forever too. <laughs> and, and you'll notice if I go ahead and change the payload, then all the values change. SLC. Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. All right, guys. So let me go back to our. All right. Um, all right. Last question. Um, last question. Uh, Rudy. Well, any uh, last question I have listed here, and then any questions Show. you guys might have. So Ruetti Fur said, "I'd be interested in a video that shows what an MES isn't." And what are the biggest mistakes in implementing or planning an MES? What do you need to avoid? What are the expectations from customers and do they fit or should they be addressed somewhere else in the automation stack? All right. This is a, this is a great question. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and answer it now, but we're going to shoot, we'll shoot this video. But th this is a, and the reason I'm answering it is because this is an answer that we need to get out there as quickly as humanly possible. So, um, all right, MES is not ERP, number one, okay? Uh, MES is not quality software, all right? Um, MES is not super supervisory control and data acquisition. There is a lot of, I keep getting a lot of comments that are like, hey, you know, Walker, you said that the core four in MES are work order, scheduling, OEE, and downtime. Isn't downtime part of OEE? Well, sort of a part of downtime is part of OEE. So a, a component of downtime that is planned and unplanned, planned and unplanned downtime minutes is are needed in order for you to right. be able to calculate OEE. Well, what about reason tracking? But you don't need reason tracking in order to calculate OEE. I don't have to know the reason it was down. I only have to know that it was down. But for me to do downtime tracking, that is to do a Pareto analysis as to what are our reasons we were down. I have to actually track uh, my states. So not just states zero, one, or two, but all the reasons why my machine could be down. Okay. Um, so when you, a lot of people were saying, Hey, I, I just put a lot of the MES functionality in inside of my 
SCADA system. And I, that's great. That's awesome. In fact, I wish more people would put machine state as a component of their supervisor control and data acquisition systems, right? Um, but manufacturing execution at its core is the execution of manufacturing all your products, not just running your processes, okay? So one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're implementing and planning MES is they don't, they, they'll build their MES system just for, like say I'm at plant A and I'm, and I'm one plant of 60 in my organization. One of the things that I will do is I'll build an MES system that only works for my plant. It's only the capabilities my plant needs, and I will make design decisions that create technical debt in my MES system in, in, in the technical terms. I'll, I'll make design decisions that create technical debt that I would have to undo if I wanted to take the MES system from plant A and use it at plant B, okay? So one of the biggest mistakes in implementing and planning MES is I define my capabilities too narrow, Okay. Number one. Number two, I rely on people too much. This is probably the biggest mistake people make in MES. They'll, they'll develop an MES system that allows human beings to tell you what the state of the machine is, what's the reason this thing got scrapped, uh, what's the reason the machine is down, what work, when did the work order start, um, when you're building a digital MES system, you need to build just that, digital. You need to take the human being, that is, and not the human being analyzing MES data, but the human being entering MES data out of the equation as much as you possibly can, all right? What are the expectations from customers? So those are the two things. Number one, you're too narrow. Those are probably the two biggest issues. The, the capabilities are defined too narrowly because I started at plant A and I never considered plants B through Z, okay? Um, and number two, I rely on human beings too much. Those are the big, absolute biggest mistakes. Um, if you are relying on human beings to collect data for you, the best case scenario is you're going to get 60% fidelity in your data. 60%, okay? Um, what are the expectations from customers and do they fit or should they be addressed somewhere else in the automation stack? All right. The, the general expectation from a customer when you're giving them MES, especially when they're a non-technical person, is they just generically think that MES is going to solve all their problems. Not they're going to use MES to solve their problems, but that MES is going to magically solve all their issues, right? That if I have an MES system, get me an MES system, that's going to magically somehow create um, high resolution and high fidelity and, and great context out of crap data in your machine, okay? Um, so there are a lot of really unrealistic expectations when it comes to um, MES. So how do you overcome that, okay? You overcome that by focusing on the core four. Okay. You focus on work order management. You focus on scheduling of your work orders on your production lines. You focus on calculating OEE accurately and being able to prove empirically 
that that's an accurate OEE calculation, that this is our actual overall equipment effectiveness number. And if you can do that, I mean, that drives you to make sure that your state is accurate, your counts are accurate, et cetera. And last but not least, effective downtime tracking. If you start there and then scale out, the next thing that almost the next capability is almost always um, scrap codes. So that is being able to analyze waste at a at a very very high high resolution. You know what quantity of our waste was for this defect reason. What quantity of our waste was for that defect what's, reason? What's and more what is the relation? Hold on. And what's the relationship between this defect code and this product code? When I run product code A. What is the likelihood, what is the distribution of defects that I'm going to see across product code A, and how does it compare to the distribution of defect codes I see when I'm running product code B? Go ahead, Zach. Sorry. Um, <coughs> Uh-oh. I just forgot what I was saying. I say um, MES. Oh, um, what is, so what's more, what's more costly, waste of product or waste of time and downtime? Or uh, down, downtime is definitely um, the companies. Companies. I mean, if you're already be producing know, waste, you might as well not be producing at all during that time, though. So, but down, it's, down, it's accounted in quality. Here, here, here's the deal. Um, most organizations know have a good idea how much waste they produce. Not all organizations. There, are, there are examples out there of organizations that produced. So they produce so much waste and they're and they're blind to it. But that's really the exception, not the rule. Most organizations focus on waste to begin with. Okay, that's the first thing they're focusing on. And the way they count it is for every raw material that goes in, every raw material N that goes into this into this machine, what is the likelihood that a finished good, good, high quality finished good uh, Y is going to come out on the other side? And that's how they compare it, right? Um they bake certain types of waste into the process. But what they really care about is if I plan to make a good part, what percentage of the time do I make a good part? Most organizations know that number that already, even if they're not collecting it digitally, they have a good idea. I mean, what are you going to do? Hide the scrap? I mean, somebody has got to pick it up off the floor and throw it in the trash can. Right? So most organizations don't learn a whole lot about quantity of scrap when you put in a digital MES system. Okay. But when you put in a digital MES system, one of the first things they learn about is the quantity of downtime that they weren't tracking to begin with. And here's why. Before they put a digital MES system in, they know all the major downtime events. Okay. And they know the major downtime events for one of two reasons. A, they miss the schedule, right? They're, uh, we're going to ship late and they trace that back. Oh, we had two hours of downtime on this piece of equipment. That's number one. Or number two, they put in an arbitrary number. Anytime the machine, a machine is down for greater than 30 minutes, call, you know, send out this email, get on the radio. And it's super high visibility whenever we're down for 30 minutes or more or 15 minutes or more. But nobody is tracking short downtime. Um, no one is tracking short downtime. Uh, on paper. And even if they are, the the operators are pencil whipping it. So one of the first things that happens when you start collecting downtime information digitally is you get actual downtime distributed over 
you know, mean time to repair and mean time between failure. When I'm running, how long do I run before I get my next downtime event? And when I'm once I'm down, how long does it take before we start running again? Okay. So the first thing that happens with a digital MES system is you're like, holy fuck, I've got a shit ton of waste in terms of lost runtime. And so you you notice companies start focusing on how do I eliminate all these micro stops and you know, how do I eliminate downtime? What happens after that, after you capture those gains, is now what I want to do is go and look at, I already knew quantity of scrap, but I didn't know quality of scrap, okay? So that is, what is the distribution of the reasons why something is a piece of waste? So that is when I say a part is no good, why is it actually no good? Most organizations don't really know that. And the reason why is because if you collect that information digital or on paper, it's gonna the best case scenario is your people are gonna give you sixty percent uh, fidelity in that data. Once you start collecting it digitally, you're gonna have ninety nine point nine 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 percent fidelity. And so after I've mitigated my short downtime reasons, the next thing I move to is scrap categorization, and I start fixing the reasons why my product was scrapped because of X defect, this specific type of defect. All right, let me go back here. Um, hopefully that answered uh, his question. Um, a couple of things that should be, uh, that some people try to do in MES that they shouldn't do in MES, um, where they should be addressed somewhere else in the automation stack. You shouldn't do quality management in MES, okay? You should have your MES system interface with quality management software, okay? Um, the other thing that you shouldn't do in MES is you shouldn't deploy recipes in MES. You should only track them. So you should be deploying recipes in your SCADA system. You should be tracking the delta between the recipe and the actual runtime set points in the MES system. All right. Um, C CV Rajandra, how important is PLM in the industry 4.0 ecosystem? The answer is, it is important. Uh, so PLM changes in Industry 4.0, okay? Whereas in the, in the Industry 3.0 world, it's sort of its own silo. And therefore, because of that, it has overlaps with ERP and it has some overlaps with uh, MES. Um, PLM is very important to Industry 4.0, okay? It, it's incredibly important. Specifically getting the manufacturing data for specific products back to the product engineers. So that is, what does this product look like when it's actually running? What, what, is the main, what does the process data look like when we're running that specific product? You, Industry 4.0 makes it possible for you to consume that in real time with super, super high fidelity at high reliability. Okay, so PLM is very important, but its role is a little different. Its role is more closed loop the way that it was intended when product lifecycle management software was originally developed. Um, Mark Ritchie, how would you recommend management and archiving alarm logs and audit trail records from a PLC to a database via MQTT when you have thousands or hundreds or thousands of edge of network PLCs. Um, 
that is longer than uh, that's a longer answer than what I would generally do in a live stream. Um, the answer, though, the short answer for you, Mark, is um, you defined what the the log and the and the uh, what the log itself and the audit log looks like. That is the structure of a log and an audit log, and then you deploy that as a um, as a profile or a type to your edge of network device. Okay. Um, think of it as a user defined data type. You predefine what the log and the audit log would look like, and then you deploy it as a profile. Um, that's the short answer. Um, it's a more comprehensive answer, but that's your short answer. All right. Any other questions before we call it an afternoon? Uh, real quick, before we get off, um, I didn't see. Oh, oh, Mark Ritchie, any update on your NX102 Spark Plug B? Good question. Uh, beta testing. Yes. Um, uh, man, I wish I had checked that before here. Um, so uh, I think we're going to be able to share the beta with the community. That's that's my answer. Um, <laughs> it is it is going well. Is it, uh, Vaughn, do you have any info on that? Uh, no, I do not. Not currently. Um, all right. I will... I, I promise to answer that next Tuesday, Mark. Okay, let me get my, my answer. What was that gem of a statement again? Consume data in real time in hell fideli high fidelity and uh, high high resolution and reliability. Um, Paul Kopkak, that is something we focused on in my last job, downtime events that were high frequency, even though they were two to three minute intervals, but 55 times in a 10-hour shift. Paul, that puts you guys way ahead. Um. And but that is the one of the first places everyone starts once they've deployed digital MES. It it, it jumps off the screen at them, by the way. <coughs> um, Christian Thanks, Christian Mayan OPC UA is based on MQTT. Why wouldn't you recommend OPC UA? Um, because OPC UA is not based on MTV on MQTT. Um, they're not. Um, He's probably thinking about pub sub on the part 14, but right. OPC UA does recommend that you use MQTT for the transport layer in pub sub in part 14. Um, what I would say is why and, don't you use OPC UA data models with a factory plus framework? Yeah. Which is, you know, yeah. It's like that, yeah. Let me say this. I, I do recommend OPC UA in certain places in the stack. Uh, and, and when we, when we release the podcast, I think it's going to go tomorrow. I still have to watch it back. Uh, the podcast with Raviel, um, you'll see that, you know, Raviel and I actually agree on way more um, than most people thought um, in terms of where OPC UA is appropriate and what MQTT We're strengths gonna are. We're going to post the full thing, right? Like, yep. We're going to do a, well, a actually there's, there was, so there were two places in that video where I, there, I called out some people by name that we will probably not. Okay. We're not going to include that. Not Ravil, but other people in other organizations. And it's not fair to them to do that. So we're going to cut, we'll cut those part where I, I called out these other people, but Got it. Um, I basically said like they would never come on this podcast and I'd make them look like idiots. And that's all true, but there's it. I mean, I can't go pick a fight with every person on the planet. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. 
Cool. Um, <clears throat> hey, real right. quick before we get off, guys, the piece where we I showed the I answered the question by going into ignition and creating the tags. Was that helpful? Is that something we should do more of? Is that something we should try and experiment with more? Or um, should we just stick to the uh, the straight answers? Say two said he liked it. Uh, hey, actually, this is a really good question by Wayne. PB said, if I'm building... Uh, and IoT infrastructure from scratch, Sparkplug B is still the way to go, even if it's based on older MQTT 3.1. Will Sparkplug B use MQTT 5 in the future? All right. Uh, the Sparkplug C thing? <laughs> yeah, good. this is a good question. So it, what's really important to note is if you look at, if you go to Oasis Open and you look at the MQTT 5 standard, they are going to tell you that MQTT5 is not backwards compatible with MQTT311. And what the, and and from a technical perspective, it's not backwards compatible. That is um um I can't take an MQTT5 client that with an MQTT311 broker or other client and get all the things out of MQTT5 that I wanted, or from a broker, right? Uh, MQTT3 broker. But here's the, in practice, MQTT5 is backwards per compatible. And here's why. Everyone who is, everyone who is, who makes a broker is just adding MQTT5 support to the same MQTT311 broker that they run. So for the user, for the consumer, it's backwards compatible. You would not anybody who's making a broker, including Mosquito, they added in the MQTT five support, three one one and five support. They live right next to each other. To the user, you have no idea that one client's three one one and the other one's five. You have no idea. They're all just running in the same broker. You can't tell the difference. So in practice, they're backwards compatible. Here, Sparkplug B. The standard Sparkplug B is really the midway point between MQTT 3.1.1 and MQTT 5. There are th there are features that Sparkplug B added in that were missing in 3.1.1 that are included in MQTT 5. Okay, and so in order for Sparkplug B to to sit on top of MQTT 5 and get all the benefits of MQTT 5 then you would need a spark plug C. You'll basically you'll basically take out of spark plug the things that MQTT5 supports natively and or spark plug 5 or whatever. Right. And then you'll and then you'll that you'll use that standard. So the long answer or the short answer is will spark plug B be used with MQTT5? Yes. But I guarantee I don't think it's going to be called spark plug B. Okay. Now, if you talk to the Sparkplug working group, they're not talking about this right now. It's it's a non-issue. It doesn't matter. It doesn't impact the end user. So no one needs to worry about it. Why? Because if MQTT5, 311, and Sparkplug B are all supported in the same broker, you don't know the fucking difference. You don't know the difference that B is built on 311 and not 5. You don't. The user doesn't know. Okay. Um, that being said... 
I can already see advantages to be over five. That's right. There are advantages for spark plug to be an implementation of MQTT five really with the edge of node edge of network nodes. Uh, Paul, one really good example can carry the rest of the components of each framework component of JSON. Yes. Thanks again. All right. Awesome. Appreciate everyone. Uh, great stream. And, uh, we will, uh, mentorship. We have our call this Friday. Um, and I'll see you guys on that call. See you guys. See you guys. See you.